What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Mm. I reckon we have a bit of a showdown, me and you. Really? Yeah. Okay. Really find out who's a better trainer. Ooh, now you've fucking thrown the cat amongst the pigeons, haven't you? Yeah. I reckon we get puppies, mm. brothers or something like that, okay. and have a bit of a competition, see who can raise it the best. Okay. So now that you've thrown the gauntlet out there, where are you thinking that we're going to get these magnificent specimens from? I want to get duchies right. or shepherds. Yep. So if we're going to get them, the only place in the world that anybody should be looking to get mm. a German Shepherd or a Dutch Shepherd from is House Hamburg Shepherds in Germany. Oh, good call. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I like this. All right. So now that we've got the dogs, yeah. what's the next part of the evolution? Well, the good news is mm-hmm. they they can send those Shepherds anywhere in the world. Yep. So what about we get one sent here to Australia? Right. You'll train that one. Okay. And I'll get one sent to myself in North America. Mm-hmm. But we're going to need training equipment to train those dogs. Right. So I guess that I have to go and talk to the bullfed. Yeah. So your gear, all your dog training needs, Mm -hmm. because we'll start fresh. We'll get all new everything. Everything. All your dog training needs will be met by Ironswick Dog Quip. Oh, the bullfed himself. Yeah. Okay. So I can get myself some mills, some great leads, some collars. All that Training stuff. devices, treats, balls, whatever I need. Yeah, you'll be yep. able to get that from Ironswick because yep. you're going to be here in Australia. Well, that means that you have to go up north, further north yep. in, in North America yep. and go and see old mate Mach Le Point. Yep. And get everything from Canine everything. Dynamics. Oh, Canine Dynamics. Yep. Yep. I'll get the leashes I need, the tugs I need, everything. I think I can even get bite suits. Everything. Yeah. I can get that from Canine Dynamics. Yep. From in North America. Mm-hmm. There is one. Part of this that is somewhat unfair. Well, you get to hang out with Melanie Benway. Yeah. So I'm actually going to get my dog. I'm not going to do any of the training. Yep. (laughs) I'm going (laughs) to get a play and train Mm -hmm. done where Mel's actually just going to come to my house because I'm going to take that dog to Richmond, Virginia. Yep. Ashland, Virginia as well. Ashland, Ashland, Virginia. Virginia. Yep. So I think both areas. Yeah. I can be either one of those Mm. and I'm just going to go do something else nine to five and she'll come into my home train that dog. Well, you're sipping cafe lattes. Just gallivanting all over the world. (laughs) Gallivanting. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined after some false starts and some technical delays and third time lucky by my co-host, Glenn Cook. How are you, sir? It's always fun, isn't it, when we've got all this fuck around where we're trying to get the show going and then all that problem starts to... Looks like we're into it. Let's keep going. Hey, so let's get straight into the topic because Mm. we had a couple of things that we've been trying to talk about, but it's been bouncing all over the place. And in the meantime, we got an email with a topic idea 
And I think that this is, could be something that we could just do now. And I think it might be interesting. So I won't go through the start of her emails from Nikki. She's got some like, you know, personal stuff in there. But the last paragraph here, she says, the reason I'm emailing is I just wanted to ask, have you done any podcasts or would you consider doing one on how you both started, what you would do different if starting again, and how long did it take to earn a full-time income? When did you know you were ready and how much is enough education? Which I thought that would be cool. We could discuss that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. You and I came into the dog industry in you know pretty different ways because you are like, I talk about you kind of an anomaly in the industry because you decided one day to become a dog trainer, right? Like you didn't have a problem dog. You had a dog, but you had access to the people that would educate you and without you know, having to overcome any hurdles, decided to seek out an education in that. And what were you, you were like on the second course of NDTF or something like that, right? Yeah, that's right. I pretty much followed the line of what I've heard you talking about. I think Bart was the originator of this phrase, which is going from hobby, jobby and job. Literally for me, that's the way I leapt into it is that I was an electrician at the time. I got this little puppy. Well, at the time I thought he was a Roddy, he turned out to be a Roddy cross, but Everyone kept saying to me, if you're going to have a dog like this, you have to get into training. And I thought Mm -hmm. that's actually sage advice. Why wouldn't you consider training when you've got a working line dog with potential and capability to be a problem? But he wasn't really a problem. I mean, he had some problems like he was just a normal happy puppy, but I had to learn how to do things. But it was a case where I went along with a bunch of people and you can hear a bunch of these stories when I talk about my backstory and so forth on these podcasts. But I went along, mm-hmm. met a bunch of people I really fell into a great friendly relationship with. I really loved what I was seeing and what I was participating in. I was so enveloped in everything that was going on that I thought I can't imagine this not being a very strong part of my life. There were certain things in your life where every cell in your body is telling you this is it. This is what you were born to do. Like it doesn't matter what your parents are telling you or your friends and family are telling you. Like when you're in those moments, and this is not me telling you, you know, like go and be a skydiver if if you've got a fear of heights or something like that. But it just, (laughs) for me, I just knew it. I just fell in complete love with it. Everything else that I was doing in my life, I thought none of this gives me anywhere near the happiness, the joy, and the feeling of completion that this does. Mm. There was nothing about it that I could look at back then and say, I really wish I pursued something differently. It's never, ever for me been about the dog training that's been a problem for me. Certainly, there have been people problems along the way, and it doesn't matter what career or trade or occupation that you're getting involved in, that's never not going to happen. But you need to not focus on that because, like I said, that's always par for the course. You're always going to have differences of opinion with different people that you're integrating with. But in relation to the dog side of things, that was never a regret for me. I'm so fortunate and so lucky and so blessed and to be so integrated into an industry and a world and a group of people and a tribe or whatever you want to call it that I truly love and is so immersive and it's helped me grow. It's taken me out of very, very uncomfortable stages in my life. It's changed me. Like it's given me purpose where I didn't feel that I, I had any before. You know, I've talked about trials and tribulations that have occurred to me in my life. I've been open about a few things that have happened to me and so forth. And it's like an old saying my grandmother used to tell me, what you miss out on the merry-go-round, you make up on the early gurdy which is basically the same sort of thing. 
it's, it's an no, old thing. I don't know. I have no idea what it is, but it's kind of like a carnival ride or something like that. That's an old person oh, saying. It's an old person saying. I've never heard Haven't that. you? What, you miss out on that merry-go-round you make up on the hurdy-gurdy? Yeah. I don't know what an hurdy-gurdy is. <laughs> well, we'll have to find out and put it up in our discussion group. But I need to do some Googling. Yes, you do need to Google, as Bertie would yeah. call it. Google. Google. <laughs> <laughs> but... Shit happens. Shit happens to everybody and shit happened to me and life wasn't always about misery and being downtrodden. I'm like millions and millions of other people that things happened to me in my youth, things that I would have been happy for that not to happen, but dog training made complete sense to me. It was like pain relief, to be honest. If I could Mm. best describe it in one sort of word, it was like pain relief. Like the things that I was concentrating on and being overwhelmed with and constantly thinking of, a lot of what's happening in the dog training industry took that away from me. So Mm. I got to immersify myself in a culture of people and an occupation and a livelihood of something that is just, I cannot express how thankful and appreciative I am of being here and still so heavily actively involved in something I care so deeply about. Yeah, it's a cool industry in a lot of ways. And I think maybe your path into it wasn't exactly as unconventional as I was kind of implying, because I think I personally feel like most people come into it as the hobby, the jobby, the job, as you say, it's sort of Bart's line. And I think it's rare that you get people who are like, hey, I'm, I have no experience training dogs. I'm going to go to a dog training course or at school and I'm going to become a dog trainer. And not saying it's rare that that happens, that does happen, but I don't think many of those people really persist. You don't see too many of them kind of down the line. And, and that's not to say that it's like a rule. It's not that that doesn't happen. In fact, Chad Mackin is probably the most prominent example I can think of of someone that just did that, right? Like, you, you remember he told his story, like he was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this dog training course, did a course, and then that's it. You're a professional trainer from there. And I think that's exceptional that mm-hmm. he's, you know, 30 years later still in the industry and, and he's a, you know, respected trainer. For the most part, I think people that do that, they don't hang around. I think that that slow roll is, is what we see most people. And certainly my case, the way I entered the industry was that it was that I encountered a military working dog, was extremely impressed, wanted to be a part of that. At the unit I was in at the time while I was in the army, didn't have military working dogs, started investigating it, you know, dog training, not military working dog stuff, ended up with a dog that was a huge problem, was more than I was capable of dealing with, couldn't find a trainer that was able to help me and decided like I had to become that trainer that was able to manage this dog. And I think that's kind of a fairly similar story that we see throughout the industry. It might not be a military working dog story, but it might be that they got a dog, you know, expecting something, a simple family pet, and ended up with a reactive dog or an aggressive dog, or they ended up, you know, by chance with some superstar dog that, you know, they ended up doing training with, but it's kind of that slow progression. And then like, it's that falling in love with it. Mm -hmm. And they're the people that tend to persist, I think, is the people who, Exactly as you said, like it opens up and they become a huge part. The dog training, the industry, the people, the act of training itself becomes, you know, an indispensable part of their life and they can't imagine doing another job or being outside of that industry. It's funny you say that you realize you loved it and you left being an electrician. Like I can remember when I was in the army and I was doing a lot of, you know, I had my normal job. I think at the time I was a sniper platoon sergeant and I would, I would go to work early. It was when they were raising the dog capability at my, my unit. 
I'd be there early to assist in the kennels and whatever. Then I'd do my own job poorly. I'm sure there were plenty of people in my platoon that hated me because of how I was not focused on what I should have been doing because I was much more interested in the dog stuff. And then I'd rush home to train my own dog. And then I would be out at nights in my local community training other people's dogs, right? Like as I was just trying to get more hands-on experience. I can remember thinking to myself like, oh, this is, I think, like a big part of my life now. Like I have a lot of flash in the pan hobbies, right? Like I just do things, I get obsessed with things and then a year later it's gone. Right now I'm a one wheeler. <laughs> I cruise around on a fucking one wheel, the most dangerous electric vehicle ever made, right? And who knows in three months, that thing may never get ridden again, who knows? But there's certain things that I can feel as you're doing them, you're like, oh, this fits. Mm. This is going to be a part of who I am. And I, I, I'm not sure that I want to, like, I know who I was without this in my life, but I'm not sure I want to be that person. I like this person that has this in their life. And that for me, you know, I, I started realizing that in about 2011. I remember that thinking like, hmm, I think this dog training thing is something that I'm really going to pursue, right? We can talk about paths to doing that. There's probably better ways than I did, but I think that for me was how I got into it as the hobby, the jobby, and then ultimately the job was that it felt very natural. And I think one of the really interesting things about our industry is that we have this odd blurring between our personal lives and our professional lives. Mm. And it's as though they're kind of the same thing. It's kind of like we were discussing before that dog trainers don't use LinkedIn. We don't have, you know, for the most part, I'm sure that there's people on there. I have a profile that I never use, but for the most part, our professional networking is just our normal personal social media and people, you know, I know too much about <laughs> so many dog trainers in the industry because I'm friends with them because, you know, of a, a professional connection, but the difference between your professional life and your personal life blurs to the point where it's almost indistinguishable. So now I know a lot about these people and we're this strong community and there's factions, there's infighting, there's problems, but for the most part, it's a big group of people that share this really bizarre affection for training dogs. It's kind of an odd thing. That's how it came to be a job for me, not the specifics, you know, uh, but that's as like how I felt about it along the way, which I think is probably pretty similar to yours. When I was listening to you talking before, I got this mental image of sailors out to sea and the myth of the siren call that, you know, they had to strap themselves to the mast to stop themselves from steering themselves onto the rock and plummeting to their death in the abyss from the sirens calling them in. The reason why I had that mental image is because that's kind of what happened when I was down there at dog training and I kept thinking, I know this sounds silly, but it kind of like this is singing to me. It's like you need to be here. This is your family and this is your future and this mm. is where you need to be. Mm. And none of that felt weird. Like I've told this story so many times, so many NDTF students know this story, so many times I've talked about it in past episodes. I use this term recycling because I've recycled this so many times. But my grandmother was so fucking disgusted. She wasn't really happy that I was going to be a tradesman either because she wanted me to be – she was a bit of a snob. She wanted me to be an accountant or, you know, involved in some sort of something she could brag about. Yeah. She wanted, she wanted me to be in something white collar. 
my grandfather was an engineer, so he was an electrical engineer. He was happy. He thought it was great, you know, like he was really happy about it. He was an, um, an engineer in the Air Force as well. When the planes were shot up and everything like that and they parked them, he used to go and pull all the dashes out and, you know, get the planes flying again, fix all the instrument dashes and shit. So he was quite happy. He thought that was great. My grandmother was like, eh, you know, like I just said to her, look, I, I just can't see myself staying in school. I'm, I'm too distracted. I need to get out. I don't enjoy school. It just doesn't really sit well with me. Which is kind of funny because ever since I've left school, I've done nothing but school. Like I've done courses and <laughs> it's bizarre. <Yeah. laughs> but she was a very powerful person in my life, like extremely powerful. She could just make people shudder. That's how intense she was as a person. And she really had a lot of scope and pull and directional influence in my life. But nonetheless, this was the one where we really butted heads with each other and it was kind of like my rite of passage. You know, like her and I squared off over this. I remember going around there one day and she said, we need to talk. And I said, fair enough, let's talk. And she goes, I'm just not happy about this career choice of yours. I really think it's very beneath you to do it. I just don't understand it. Your pa and I just can't understand why you want to do this. And she said, have you thought about me? And I said, not at all. And she goes, <laughs> she goes, what do you mean? And I said, this is not your decision. And this is my decision. And I said, I love you and I appreciate everything that you've done for me. And I know how much you love me and how proud you are of me. But if you truly do love me, then you release me and let me do this because I need to do it. And I said, because I've never experienced happiness like this in anything else that I've done. Everything that I've done, I've kind of thought, well, I'm here, I'm, I've got to do this job. Like I remember being an electrician. At the start, I liked it. And then I realized I'm not happy here. Mm. I don't belong with these people. And it wasn't that they were bad people. I just didn't belong with them. And because of that, I suffered in the job and I, and I suffered because of it. Like I don't think I did a really good job in the end. I let people down because I just hated it. I think of excuses of why not to go to work in the morning, you know, like inventing sicknesses to get out of going to work. And that's not me. I mean, even in the job that I'm in now, like I've been working for pet resorts for 11 years in August. In the entire time I've been here, I think I've had probably the equivalent of two weeks sick days in the entire time. And I mean, I work public holidays. As you said before, I work some extensive hours, but I'm not unhappy to come to work. Like I'm not unhappy to live where I live and have afforded to me what I've got. I think of myself as an incredibly fortunate person the vast majority of the people that are involved in our business, I really like them. I respect them. That's never always going to be the case where you're working and you're immersed with people who are amazing at every nook and cranny of everything you're doing. You're always going to have personality disorders with people from time to time. That's, that's just a given. That's how humans interact. Some people come into your life quickly and they exit your life just as quickly. It's good right. for both parties. It just wasn't a good fit. Where other people come in and they lock in and, you know, like as you said before, it's one of those worlds where, you know, like most of the people that work for me, I, I know a lot about them. I know who they are. I know what they like. I know who their partners are. I know who their parents are. It's not like we're in each other's pockets and we have no disconnection from each other, but I care about them and they care about me. They're nice people. They're good people. They mean well. They do this job because they love this job and they're compassionate about what they're doing. And that's a lot of people in, in the dog industry. There are some people who get into this industry because they're running from something 
They've had some hardships in their life. You and I have discussed this before. They're trying to get out of the flight path of other humans. They just don't want to really be around them. So they they find their their tribe and their tribe is there might be some people who have got some issues but they support each other and they prop each other up and they help each other and they find where they were lacking growth in their other life they now have integrated into such a relationship with each other and such a point of trust and such a lovely immersive type of environment that they've become somebody else and they've actually helped heal themselves because of the job that they're actually in yeah that kind of career path and that kind of job don't ever look down on somebody for doing that like if you're a part of a family unit you're you you know like your child or your sibling or somebody else has gone into something like that but they love it and nobody's getting hurt from this they might be earning a little less but if you can see them smiling and if you can see them i'll give you an example I know I've just jumped out of this topic, but it's very much related. Remember that movie, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? It's Jack Nicholson's That and The Shining or two of the movies that really created him. And he, it's about somebody who fakes uh, mental illness and gets put in an asylum or mental health facility, whatever you want to call them. And there was a, a young kid in there who he had a lot of problems. He started, he had issues with his mother. And there was a nurse in there who was just an absolute narcissistic megalomaniac because of the relationship with Jack Nicholson and this younger fella, he felt happy and Jack Nicholson gave him freedom and made him feel like he was okay to be a normal human being. He lost his stutter. He started smiling and laughing and being a bit rebellious and being a kid. He found himself all of a sudden where he was mixed up and confused and had these problems before, but this horrible nurse went and threatened him that she was going to talk to his mother and you could see him like losing himself and coming apart and the stutter returned and so forth. That's the sort of thing that you need to be, you need to have a look at, like you need to consider sometimes how does that person actually feel when they're integrated in this job and they're not hurting anybody. And they're the things Mm. that I try and encourage other people to think about some of the partners and even parents in the past have said to me, this isn't a real job, is it Glenn? I said, was for me. I make an honest living out of doing this job and I live well, to be honest, by doing this job. So what's the problem? And I've gone, oh, okay, yeah, fair enough. And they sort of said, I, I kind of thought it was just like a, something you do for a year and then you get sick of it and then you move on. And I said, some people do. They yeah. find that it's not for them. And I've got one girl that works here, Olivia. She rents the house behind the kennels on the other side of us. She's been here longer than I have. She's just adored through the whole organisation she comes to work. She's always happy. I've never seen her in a bad mood. I've never seen her lose a temper with dogs. I can hear her singing to the dogs. I guess I've never really sat down with her and dissected every single thing, but she appears happy. She's never said to us, I'm not happy. I don't want to be here. You guys don't treat me well or anything like that. Like if anything, she's adored in the place. And I believe that she actually loves a job and she adores being here. Like it gives her peace and it makes her feel happy and so forth. And and that being the case, leave people alone. Let them do the job they want to do. Yeah. I think there's some interesting things you said there about survivability in the industry. And I think – Are you saying that we should unpack this? <laughs> um, but I think survivability in the industry relates to let, – let me rephrase There is a lot of money you can make as a dog trainer. You can make a really fuck ton of money. And I don't think a lot of people don't realize that. Like certainly maybe that's something, you know, relating to, you know, your grandmother talking about 
then I realized, you know, is uh, you can go and we're unqualified for the most part, right? Like, of course, there's qualifications some people have and you can get and you should seek out education. We'll talk about that soon. But for the most part, anyone can just start calling themselves a dog trainer and they can go out and depending on where you are in the world, you know, you can charge quite a lot for dog training and, and it's quite a lot sort of comparatively, you know, you could earn as an unskilled person, you could earn between 50 and $250 an hour where your other options might be between, you know, to do unskilled labor might be between seven and, you know, 25, $30 an hour. Right. So I think some people kind of find that out and they're like, Oh, there's a lot of money to be made in dogs. And there is, but the type and nature of the work is hard. Mm. There's like no time off as a dog trainer, especially if you're going to take board and train. So one of the interesting things is, you know, I encourage, I've encouraged plenty of people to, who, you know, maybe don't want to deal with clients and a lot, you know, to do board and trains because there's great money in that. And, and especially on a small scale, you can do them, you know, like in a, a home setting type thing. It's probably, you know, depending on the legalities of where you are, there's some issues around that, but you know, two, three dogs at a time, you can make a, you know, a couple of thousand dollars a week doing that pretty easily. And I think some people see the dollar signs on that and think, Oh, what an, you know, this is an industry for me. And typically if your only motivation is those dollar signs, then they're the kind of people that tend not to stick around too long. I think, you really got to have a deep love for doing this because it is all consuming. There's no days off, right? Like if you've got dogs in your care, you know, like you at out of the kennels there, you've got 250 dogs you know, when they're full or whatever, there's 250 dogs in the kennels. And if one of them starts having an issue at one in the morning, that's your issue, mm. right? You have to deal with that. And it's the same on a much smaller scale, if you're looking after three people's dogs, and that doesn't matter whether you're a trainer or a pet sitter, it doesn't matter. There is no time off. And it's not like you're at an intense level of work. Like it's not like you're at a place, you know, you're, you're not driving to your place of work and you flip burgers for eight hours and then you're done. Like it's over. Right. And you have that intense eight hours of, you know, I'm on the clock for someone else. And, and now it's my free time after that. I think as dog trainers, there's, especially if you're doing board and trains, there's this, uh, like, it's not so intense at any point during the sessions with the dogs, you're there, but you're kind of wed to them the whole 24 seven. You can't, you there always have to be a contributing part of your life. Like all your decisions about where you're going to go, things you can do have to revolve around those dogs. It's all consuming. And I think that if you don't really love that, if you don't really have a, a passion for dog training and dogs and, and the whole industry dealing with the people, not just the dogs, if you don't have a passion for the whole lot, you just don't survive. I think that's why we often see people come and go is because they either don't have that passion or that passion is quelched somehow. Like that passion goes away and, and there's loads of reasons why that could happen. You know, the people can be squashed by other people or they can just realize like, Hey, this isn't for me. I'm not getting, I'm not getting the personal time with my friends that I, I want. And I think dog industry is so interesting. It's like we we're discussing that there's really hard to draw any delineation between professional and personal time. And that most of my friends now, you know, I've only been out of the army six years. Most of my friends are now dog industry people. The people I talk to on a day-to-day -day basis are other dog trainers. The people I work with on a day-to-day -day basis are other dog trainers. And I'm a one-man band. Like I don't have employees. I don't work for anyone. But the majority of the people I deal with are dog industry people. And if you don't 
like that, if you don't want to be a part of that, then I think you would struggle being in the industry. So I think they're the survivors. I think there's that deep passion that has to be there in order to do this as a job. You could do it for sure. You could do it, but you're not going to be happy if you don't have a deep love and passion for doing this. Mm. And I think people get away with not enjoying their job when their job is a check-in check-out kind of thing right so like i don't like my job but i go there i'm there for six hours and i go home right and then the rest of the day is my own but because we don't have that typically you've really got to enjoy it you've really got to love it and when you get a problem dog you got to be like you know you got to enjoy this the problem solving aspect of it you can't look at like i think if people look at a problem dog and they're like ah this is a headache then you know, that doesn't, your, your job is not enjoyable and you're not going to find the good solutions. Whereas for the most part, the best trainers I know look at a problem dog and they're like, oh, this is a new puzzle to solve. This is an exciting opportunity to learn something new, or this is, you know, an opportunity to help a dog in a way that I haven't before or something like that. Right. But I think if, I, I don't know how many more times I can say it, you've got to have a passion for this to survive in the industry. I think what's interesting was Nikki's question was, not just how did we get into it, but what I think would be interesting to unpack was if someone came to you now, right, and said, what is the best way to get into the dog industry, become a dog trainer, full-time dog trainer, what advice would you give them? What do you think is the best way to do that? I think that's the entry into the industry is you, you should be passionate about it. You should have a deep love for dogs and also a deep love for wanting to teach people how to be better at having a relationship with dogs. If you think you're coming into this industry to escape people, think again. Yeah. You know, that's like, the classic. Right? There's so many people that are like, "Oh, I don't want to deal with people. I'm going to become a dog trader." It's like, "Oh, bad news, my friend." Ex- exactly. That's been something that we've touted throughout certain episodes. We've talked about how you cannot escape people. It's going to be evident that as soon as you get into the industry and you realize, whenever I'm training a dog there has to be a time where that collides with humans. There's no way out of it unless, unless you do the training in the kennel, which I know there have been situations where this has happened, where you do all the training, you do all the great work, and then somebody steps in on the last day, does a little bit of tutti-frutti with the dog, and then they're back out getting all the praise and the glory from the audience. Now, that's happened. There's been plenty of times with that. And the people who are doing the training are happy with that because they're happy to train the dogs. They're doing what they love. And they're happy not to integrate with the people, but they never get any of the credibility of training the dog because they're the unknown entity behind the scene. I don't like that and I don't think that's ethical and that's nothing that I want to support. Just Mm. for an example, when I first came to Pet Resorts, the owners of the company at the stage, they said to me, oh, we want to promote you as the new trainer and put your name up at the front. And I said, I don't want to do that because... Number one, I don't know if and how long I'm going to be here. I said, I'm obligating myself and I'm committing myself like I burnt my ship on the shore. So I haven't got anything to go back to. I mean, I'm sure I could, but I've literally burned my ship. So I'm here. I'm ready to take this on full bore. But I don't want to do this. What I want to do is create a brand for the business and I want to integrate myself into it where I can create a generation under me and then, you know, like we can build the brand. It shouldn't be about me or one person because I don't want them just saying, oh, I'm here to see Glenn, I'm here to see Glenn, I'm here to see Glenn. And I said, otherwise, mm-hmm. I don't create a legacy for this company, I create a crutch. And I mm-hmm. said, I'll fucking destroy you the minute I leave because people will say, well, if he's gone, I'm, I'm out of here, I won't come back. And then wherever yeah. I end up, if if I ended up somewhere else, 
And I know that when you're having that discussion with a business owner, that can sound quite negative, but it doesn't come from a place of negativity. It comes from a place of protecting their investment and showing them that I'm not there to stooge their business. Like I'm not there to set myself up where I can literally collapse them with one move. Mm. That was never my intention from the start. Other people have different business relationships. They have different sort of plugins and different deals and different structures, whatever they're doing. That's fine. No problem. That's worth talking about because she's asking about coming into the industry and starting her own business. And I think there's two parts to go down. This is something I spoke about with Bart quite a lot is Bart's name is trademarked, right? Bart Bellin. Mm-hmm. There's a trademark after that. The problem that sort of comes with that, and as he said, is it's really hard to grow as a business because if it was Glenn Cook's pet resorts, then when Glenn Cook isn't training the dog, people are like, hey, what the fuck, right? Like I, I'm here for Glenn Cook and this is not Glenn Cook and you can't – there's a capacity issue, right? And I think that's one of the things when people come into – when you're starting a business – making your name and your face the most recognizable part of the business can be really cool in the short term. In the short term, it's fantastic because it is just you and it's very personable and people you know, like the idea that it's you and it's your business, it's your face. But then it, it really almost completely you know, limits your ability for growth completely in that if you've got Pat Stewart's dog training and you book a session online with Pat Stewart, and then someone else turns up to train your dog, you're like, hey, where the fuck's Pat Stewart, right? I had a friend of mine, because that's me, that, that's the position I'm in. Mm. I, I'm a one-man man, and it makes it really difficult for me to expand. And I had a friend, actually, uh, his name's Michael Martin, and he he's a photographer, big-time photographer in Sydney. I met him at a business thing many, many years ago, and he had just rebranded to be MM Photos. And it was for exactly that. They were doing four weddings a weekend, these big company. And he was like, when you book Michael Martin Photography, if Michael Martin doesn't turn up, you go, hey, what the fuck, mm-hmm. right? But he's, he's like, I'm a, he's a great photographer, but he, the people he employs are just as good, but they don't have his name. So that's why he had to change the name of the business to be MM Photos so that you know, it's, it's just a, it's just a logo with two M's and it, of course it goes back to him, but it, when someone else turns up, you're not like completely perturbed when it's not Michael Martin. And so I think that's probably good advice for starting a business. And I think that's why a lot of people who are successful, you know, like their business is often named after their dog. Mm. Like if it's not a, a geographical thing, even naming something geographically can be limiting because then you're sort of limited to there and it, you never know, you might expand massively, but a lot of people name their business after their dog or something like that. And their logo is just their dog because that's kind of immortal, right? Like you'll always have that cute dog and that cute name, even 10 years after that dog's gone, nobody even needs to ever know that dog really existed. It's just kind of a, an avatar for the business rather than necessarily needing to be a real thing. So I think that's worth pointing out since she's asking about starting her own business. I think that's kind of worth knowing is that just the, the naming of the business and the branding shouldn't focus on one person. And, and like, that's something that Bart spoke to me about and said that, you know, it's kind of a trap that he's in. And it's something that I've painted myself into as well. Like, you know, in my business, like I, as a coach that I am, I, it's me, it's just me. And it be really hard, not that I'm interested in growing as a business in that way, but if I wanted to, it would be really hard for me to take on staff and have other people turn up when people are booking things with me. Like, could you imagine someone books a seminar and then someone else turns up to deliver it, right? Like, could you imagine? <laughs> I, look, if, 
I understand what you're saying, but I mean, if you had coached and mentored somebody and they had developed a name and a character and a reputation out there, then people would be happy to do that. For example, what you were talking about before, one day, which I thought was really cool, I actually laughed about it and I thought, oh, that's really cool. Some people might be offended about what I'm going to talk about next, but I actually laughed and thought it was amazing. So I went out to our training studio where we do PSA and, you know, like the trainers are generally out there. And I can't remember, it was Kristen or Kana, one of them was out there with a couple and I walked in and they were doing a private lesson with the dog and I sat there and I watched them for five minutes and I said, do you mind if I give some advice here just on watching what's going on? The customer sort of looked at me with this bewildered look. I think it was Kristen. I think she said, oh yeah, you know, please, whatever you can see. And I said, try this, this and this. And, you know, they did it. It worked and they were happy. And then as I was walking out the room, I was just about to close the door. The couple said to Kristen, who is that? And Kristen goes, oh, that's Glenn Cook. And they go, are we supposed to know who he is? And she goes, oh, he's our boss. Like he's a, you know, like he's trained me and everything. And they go, oh, so are we supposed to know who he is? And it was just like, you know, like who is this schlep that just turned up in his tracksuit? And I thought that's cool. That's exactly what I wanted to do is I wanted to make sure that Kana or Kristen or whoever's doing the job, they're empowered with their own people that when they're working with them, they're not coming here. Like people used to turn up here to train with me all the time and then they get disappointed if they find out that somebody else was doing it. But I never advertised it that way. I never said, if you come here, I will be training your dog. Even people that I've I've spoken to on the phone and they've said, are you going to do the training? I said, no, one of my staff will be doing the training unless I'm doing a private lesson with you. And I said, but the boarding and training will be done with this person, this person. And I said, but I'm coaching them and I'm supervising them and they're workshopping with me all the time. So if they've got a problem, all they have to do any time of the day or night, if they're confused or upset or something's not going right or they just need advice, all they need to do is pick up the phone to me or all they need to say is, can you come in in the yard and watch me train the dog and I'll go there and and work with them. So it's not like there isn't attention to detail and it isn't like they're not following the program or you're getting a lesser than. You're still getting somebody who's A, they've done training, they're very passionate, they're qualified, And they want to train this dog. Like this is a rite of passage for them. They want to do this. It's not like they have to do this and they're turning up to a job just to get paid. They want to do this. You're getting somebody who is not only are they passionate and compassionate, they're also qualified to do it. Otherwise, we just wouldn't Mm. let them do the job. We're not just handing you off to a schlep. It's not like when you go to get your car worked on and you find out some first-year apprentice has been tinkering around with it and, you know, your car rattles and clinks off when you go down the road because they forgot to screw off the parts back onto it. You're getting somebody who's understudied and been mentored and shaped their way into it and has spent time learning how to do that. Of course, people are going to be green. I was green once. You were green once. Everybody is green when they enter the industry. Everybody has an entry into their industry. And it doesn't matter whether you're a fucking doctor, an accountant, a rocket scientist, a nuclear physicist, a brain surgeon, whatever. Every single person is a green person at some stage who has built on that foundation and has become from good to great because they're passionate and compassionate about it. That's how you grow great people. You have to let them do that. And there has to be an element of trust there where you say, take the mantle. It's your turn to steer the ship. I need to go and sleep. Somebody needs to take Mm. over this job now. It's your shift. Go for it. And that's the lovely thing to see and watching that progression. Even when we're talking about decoys, for argument's sake, 
over the years, I think about how many dogs at Australian dog training. I mean, that was basically like an, an acme line of getting smashed by dogs left, right and center. Like every Sunday and every Thursday for six years, I was getting hammered by dogs and every single, I shit you not, every single session, there would be 30 dogs in my morning session and probably 20 in my afternoon session on a Sunday and probably the same on a Thursday night for six years. So that's all I was doing. I was fit. I was fucking hungry. I wanted to do it, but it has an incredible toll on your body. I mean, my bursts in both my shoulders are exploded because of years and years and years. I've got lumps in my, like I can touch my forearm now and I've got like full on lumps of calcified, whatever it is under my skin from being mauled by dogs on my arms, but I wouldn't have had any other way. You know, I was a young man back then. I was, you know, I was fit, I was agile and I wanted to be there all the time. There is a little bit of envy and jealousy when you see a young bloke coming up and all of a sudden the light shifts and you can see that limelight shift across from you onto that new person. You think, holy fuck, they're taking my light away. No, that's the normal progression of how life is supposed to be in this industry. You've got to bless these mm. young kids and these young people who want to come in and you've got to help them because they're your new backbone. You know, like when you want your dog trained, who better to do it than somebody who's doing it either as good as you or better than you, who has yeah. grown off your knowledge and experience and has also grown off the knowledge and experience of other people in the industry who have showered them with the gift of this wonderful knowledge that they're now going to go on instead of feeling that little pinch of envy or when your pride takes a bit of a dent. And it does to everybody. It happens differently to everybody and everything. You, sh- you got to look at it and say, but it's a legacy from me. I helped with that. And if that's what your ego needs to get on with it, that's a good thing. That's a great thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful progression that you can actually play a part in helping that new young student that's now going to take off. And hopefully, like I said, not only take the best of what you gave them, but also run with it and just absorb whatever the world is going to throw at them and do it in such a magnificent way that you're going to look at them and go, oh my God, you're beyond what I got to. You've taken everything and you've grown so exponentially from it. It's just amazing to see that sort of thing happen. I love it. Mm -hmm. I used to be the younger me, as I've said in earlier episodes, the younger me would have seen that and thought, no, no, I need to steal this back from them and bring it back to me because I'm the master. I'm the one that needs to be seen. I think the older you get, the more appreciative you get of it. And you think to yourself, we need this for our industry. We need these kids to come on. And as every master does, they always needs their apprentice to come on and learn all those skills and be better and, and take it better. That's a great legacy for any coach or mentor to leave into the world. Yeah. So then back to her you know, question on, on coming into the industry, mm. what would you do different? Like if you could do your time again, what would you do different? What mistakes have you made? And I don't mean at an individual level with dogs. I mean, sort of as a career progression sort of thing. Let's say, for example, I was able to build a time machine, go back in time and inhabit my younger body and start all over again. I have thought about this. And what I would probably do is I would start my own business and I would probably have my own kennel facility, not so different than what I've got here now, but it would be mine and I would integrate it as a bit of a Disneyland for dogs kind of thing. So I'd have a kennel, mm-hmm. I'd have like an indoor training center, I'd deck it out really amazing. That's probably what I would do and that's probably where I'd put my money and my efforts into. I would pretty much make it just a like a one-stop shop for everything. What about 
sort of more in developing your skill set. I think that's more what she's asking. Okay. Like in learning to know what you know now. And, and I don't mean sort of like, cause we've, we've discussed some business options for her. Like, I mean, in developing your skills as a trainer, what mistakes do you think you've made along the way? Definitely the one that I acknowledge consistently is that I think we spent more time being compulsive than including the positive reinforcement side of training. That's definitely Mm -hmm. where I would shift my focus. I've never been ashamed of using pressure and training. I'm an advocate for it. You and I both are. This is predominantly where our show is for good, bad or indifferent. I'm still an advocate for the ethical use of pressure and training. However, Mm -hmm. I would definitely plug more positive reinforcement into training. That's Mm -hmm. probably the only thing that I would do significantly different if I had my time again. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting. Like I say, it's sort of what we were alluding to at the start. I think that the majority of people who hang around in the industry for a while and are successful, and there's different measures of success. There's, you know, happiness and your effectiveness as well as monetary is, you know, one way we can measure success. But I think that the majority of the people that are successful by all those measures, usually it's a slow roll. And I think that's one of the things we've discussed that in many podcasts in the past about people sort of rushing for information and and who do you go to to learn and do you digest it all? And I think it's a slow roll is the way to do it. I think that that if you go too fast at trying to get to the finish line, then you realize that yeah, it's kind of a hollow victory in getting there and you don't really develop the skill sets along the way. Mm. So for me, my advice to people trying to come into the industry and it's got to be kind of organic. And I know that's sort of, you know, like such a wishy-washy thing to say, but the more specific advice around that would usually be there's so many trainers out there and there's so much availability to information. What I would do it's all effective, right? Like everybody that's doing stuff. And if you, if if you've heard of them, what they're doing is effective in one way or another, because they've got some level of success. It's why, you know, they exist. And so I would encourage people to look at lots of different styles of training. And I mean, styles as in styles of dogs to train. Like, are you training? Are you interested in training police dogs? Are you interested in training sport or performance dogs? Are you interested in training performances in performing trick dogs? Do you want to deal with aggression cases? Do you want to do just basic obedience? Like there's so many factions that you Detection, can look at. The whole lot, even all the different the whole, realms that so offers. Yeah. My advice is usually to sort of decide where you want to go within there and you don't have to start there, but sort of have a trajectory to get there and align yourself with the people that are doing that. And then within that space, align yourself with the people who are training in a way that feels best to you. Because like I say, there's plenty of people that are pretty still yank and crank and train effectively because there's clients that want that and there's dogs that handle it. And so there's people that do that. And if that's how you think dog training should be, if that's what, you know, when you look at the whole picture, if that's what you think dog training should be, then that's the people you should align yourself with to start. Mm. And I think, you know, if you look at someone training with more with how we would identify as trainers is very motivational trainers, deliberate and precise use of pressure. Then that's the sort of people you should align yourself with. Or if, if all of that makes you sick and you think, no, I only want to be like, you know, the plus R community, then look at those people. And then what part of the industry do you think you want to really want to be a part of? How do you want to train dogs? Like how do you feel good about it? And then find the person that's doing that and align yourself with that person. Mm. And I think it's that slow progression. That's my advice to people is don't try and rush. I think that for the most part, 
the people who are really successful and been around a while, they don't have an end point. And I think sometimes people look at them and go, they are the end point because you see they train dogs so well and their business is doing well and they seem happy and whatever. And you look at them and you go, Hey, that's where I want to get to. That's my end point. And you try to rush to there. But if you spoke to those people, they aren't at the end, they're still on the journey. Right. And so I think that it's realizing that even if you want to be like, but, or you want to be like Michael Ellis, just becoming them right now is not possible and not probably not healthy in that they are still evolving. They're still learning stuff. They're still evolving what they do and following their passion towards, you know, what keep, what, not only what makes them happy, but what keeps them happy. Right. So they evolve kind of over time. Michael Ellis is a good example because, you know, he used to compete heavily in Mondio and then stop for a long time and he's starting again. Right. So like, you know, people ebb and flow and they change. There's no end point. It's not like he was a competitor in Mondio and then that's it. It stopped and I don't do it anymore because he's starting again. So, I think that's kind of looking at the type and nature of dog training you want to do, the people who already do that, and then aligning yourself along those paths and learning as much as you can from each person. And if you can't get to that person because the person you look at is world famous competitor, whatever, and they don't take students, then align yourself with the best copy of that. Right? Mm. Like it doesn't have to be that exact person, but that sort of type of person that's doing that kind of thing. And I think that's probably my best advice. And the reason I feel like that is because that's kind of what I did, you know, like that's for me, how I ended up in it is that I just wanted to train dogs and I took in a lot of information as much as I could online. And then when I met Sam, I was like, oh, okay, this is the kind of training that I want to get into because I'm looking at this dude, I'm looking at his skill set, I'm looking at what he's able to achieve and I really like it. I'm looking at what he's capable of. And I spent a lot of time with Sam and spent as much time as I could and I was very fortunate to get as much information as I could from him. And then when you go, hey, now that I have that i don't want to just be a copy of him i have my own feelings and i have my own flair and i have my own direction that i want to go to and then you look and you go okay who's the next person that can help me get towards where i want to go to who's the next stepping stone in that not jumping all over the place but it's really aligning and digesting and going like that's a person i look up to that's a person that i really want to emulate as much as possible but not just copy like not just become and i think sometimes that's where sometimes we see people go a little bit wrong when they're coming into the industry or not wrong but it's not always the best thing for them is when they just want to be the boy of someone else, right? Mm. Like, we're, and, and there are people who want that. There's people that want to just be followed around. And I think that's a little bit of a trap to get into that because though, if you align yourself with a person that needs fans or followers, they might keep you down in order to keep you a follower rather than try to keep giving you everything that they can to elevate you to be a peer. What do you think about that? I think you're absolutely on the point. I just need to appreciate what you just said because there was a lot of really quality points that you just made in that last five to 10 minutes. Just based on the last portion that you were talking about, that's a very important point. And some people do that deliberately and some people do that because they actually don't understand that they're doing that, but they do keep you down. Primarily, I think, this is one guy's opinion, but I think they do it because... They're very insecure in themselves. 
And because you're adding value to what they're doing, they kind of think that you're then indebted to them and they keep you pinned to that position. I often reference movies a lot in some of these conversations because when I'm having these conversations, it pulls up the memory of these movies. Have you ever seen the movie Spies Like Us with Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase? Yeah, it's one of the best. Yeah. Remember when he, the guy from the agency keeps Dan Aykroyd locked in the basement to do all his work for him and takes all the credit for all uh, his work? Yeah. There's been some terrific dog trainers that have done that with very skilled understudies and, and people who have been their apprentice before. Like they've kept them locked into a place. And some people, like we've said, some people have done it deliberately. They know what they're doing and they never want that person to see the light of day because they want to take credit for their work. And there's other people who don't actually understand that they're doing that. I think there's probably a portion of them that does, but in the long run, they're not a nefarious type of person and they're not deliberately trying to do that. It's just that they've been so used to their name being the headline that it's almost inconceivable for anybody else to be taking that position away from them. There's a conversation that you and I have had earlier where there are other people in the industry who actually groom people to talk them up. They spend a long portion of time conditioning this person, much like we're training dogs, to train the same person to speak them up without actually having any genuine credibility or credentials to actually earn the title that they've been given. So nobody else would give them that level of expression except for the person that they're working in. I guess what I'm trying to say here is look deeply and look at all the angles of the person that you want to work with. Test them out. Ask them to prove themselves to you. Let's say, for example, I spoke about it some time ago about Jordan Peterson talking about how there is an, uh, uh, like a necessity for having people who are more qualified or more skilled in certain sort of industries. Whereas if you were talking about like a communist state where everybody just got the same and nobody had to try harder, you may find that people would level out. You wouldn't get people who really push themselves because they'd think, well, I don't need to. I get the same anyway, so I can just level off at this position. Whereas what I would encourage people to do is saying, what are you really capable of doing? Not what you can talk about doing, not your backstory on things. Like show me what you have learned. What has your career led you to? What can you actually do? Can you provide evidence in the claims that you're putting forward? Because there's some real mystery people out in the internet land who really have made a living off bold stories. But that's all you hear is the wonderful and expressive stories. But what can they really do? For example, Ivan could make some bold claims, but he could back it up. He could go out in the field and he could smash it. He'd probably open a door in his house and get knocked over by trophies falling over on top of him. That's what I'm talking about. There are people out there who can actually back it up. You and I were talking about this the other day about a colleague of mine in Victoria who has put title after title after title after title after title on dogs, not only her own, but also other people in the industry have gone to her and said, I can't do this. My dog doesn't seem to do it. And she'll grab the dog and say, give it to me. And she'll put a title on the dog and then another title on the dog and another title on top of that. But doesn't give a fuck about the limelight, doesn't give a shit about the accolades. It isn't about holding workshops or doing seminars, just enjoys the work. Don't get me wrong. Like there are people out there who might love cockadoodling about it, but can also back it up. They can walk the walk and talk the talk. Good on Yeah, of course. That's a wonderful thing. All I'm saying is that this industry really needs to be a lot more evidence-based and a lot less storytelling. There are some really good storytellers, but when it comes time to actually prove it, there is very little evidence to actually 
back up the big stories. What's that saying that you say like when we're talking about evidence? You have a saying. That- extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. That's the one. Yeah. That's a tricky one too, you know. I agree with you. But say you're dealing in pet dogs, right, and you make, you know, claims about the effectiveness that you've had on pet dogs in the past, it's kind of a hard thing to measure, right? Not anymore. Not like, now you can videotape things. Yeah, that's or right. Or not even videotape I mean, can, things. There's no, there's no videotaping things. You can actually video yeah. things on it. This didn't exist when we first started. This is one of the marvellous things. If you wanted to tape someone, you had to go down there. With, it almost looked like a fucking camera rig that you would need in a studio. Yeah, you know yeah. that you'd have to, you'd almost have to have a support person just to help you balance the camera on the back of you to be able to film anything. Like it was extraordinarily difficult to do that, and very costly and very cumbersome to try and film anything. And then, let alone being able to edit it or do anything constructive of it. Where these days, what a fucking world we live in. I mean, you can not only video it, but you can put music to it and sound effects and it's just extraordinary yeah. what we can do. So there is, I mean, there is evidence base there. Yeah, and in the pet dog space, like I just think that it's kind of a subjective. People see different things when they are looking at the video as well as I know how to make a dog look like a monster. Like I could do the before and after in the same day. of the six weeks board and train a lot of the videos that you might be able to show of the crazy aggressive dog that wants to kill everyone and now he walks happily down the street with the person like you could do that in 10 minutes Mm. right like it's just i know how to bring on that reaction i know how to calm it down i know how to deep drive like that that's that's easy so it's kind of a tricky thing the main measure and and really i'm trying to remember that we're talking to thousands and thousands of people, but trying to answer Nikki's question in regards to coming into the industry and how to do it. The people that you learn from, I think that they need to be able to pass on their information. Like that's the sort of the key thing. As soon as someone, if we're talking about red flags because we people who want to keep you down or that kind of thing is that the moment people start saying that there's some magic to what they do, then that kind of, I think can sometimes be a trick to tell you that you'll never be able to do it, right? Because I've got the secret sauce. Because if you can't teach it, then what fucking good is knowing it? You could go out and do it. You should absolutely, like if you've got the secret sauce, if you know how to get in the head of the dog and do all the things that's going to make the dog understand and blah, 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 that's great. You should do that on the daily and you should be helping the lives of dogs. But if that's not something that you can pass on, then you shouldn't be taking students in that space. Mm. Right. I think that's kind of it. And so when people are like, Oh, he's the master, he's amazing. And, and you see that that's why when you're talking about people being kind of groomed to say things online in that space, I think that those are the people like they've kind of tricked some of their students into thinking that they can never be as good because they want them to feel that way. You will never be as good as me. You need to always look up to me. And I think that all the coaches I've had are quite the opposite. They're like, you'll never be me because I have my own flair and you have your own flair. But my goal is to try and train you in as much as I possibly can, whether I've paid them or whether they're a friend and they're, they're doing it for love. Either way, their goal is to hand over as much of their skill set as they possibly can. And rarely would they say, or no one that I have looked up to would ever say, you will never be good at this or you're not capable of this. Because if you are no good at it, your coach, your mentor, whoever should be saying like, we need to address that. We need to work on that. Right. So one of the things, if people look at a lot of the seminar footage that I have out there, I'm often holding a whip. 
and I have like two nervous tics and so like I always run my hand through my hair. People have obviously picked that one up, right? Like everybody always makes fun of me for that. Whatever I'm teaching and I'm kind of like, it's like me saying, um, but visually when I run my hand through my hair, that's buying me time. Right. But I hold that whip and that whip for me, when I'm presenting, it's like my sookie, right? Have I ever told you a story about that whip? Have I ever told you how I, I don't I, think so. So that's Bart's whip. And when I first started training with him, I couldn't crack it. And we were doing some stuff, we were doing some bike work. It was the first private day of training with him that I ever had. And I couldn't crack the whip because it's kind of odd. And I'm not good at cracking a whip anyway, but it's kind of an odd shape, strength, blah, blah, blah. And he came up to me the other day and he goes, Pat, you're going to be a good dog trainer. And we're going to do the work. We're going to get there. But if you don't learn to crack a whip properly, you're going to keep embarrassing yourself like you have been all day. <laughs> he gave me- yeah. And he gave me this like little lesson on how to properly crack the whip and he handed it to me and he goes, now you keep this and, and get better at it. Right. And I was like, oh, okay. And do you know what I took away from that? Not him telling me I was bad at cracking the whip. What I took away from it was like, Bart said, I'm going to be a good dog trainer. Right. And I wasn't, he said I was going to be, right. This is the first time we ever trained together. And I carry that fucking whip around, man. And at the start, you'll see, look at the footage. Anybody that's ever been to anything that I ever taught, the first hour of every day, I'm holding that that whip, right? And it's it's my sookie. It's my my like little, I don't know what what's the better term than it sookie. reminds it's you my, of a great time in your life. Yeah, and I, the, the, it was the time that I was shit, and I was told by someone really good that I was capable of being good. Yep. And it, it didn't need me to say to him, you're the best, you're amazing. And he didn't need me to fluff him up. He fluffed me up. Mm. And, he, and, and I think that's the way that if you're looking for a, a good coach, that's kind of the way it should be. And it's not that he fluffed me up like, yeah, like it's not bullshit. It's like, you're going to be good. You got to put in the fucking work. And that me not being able to crack the whip was a metaphor for everything, Mm. like everything in training. It was like, here it is. He gave it to me. Here it is. Like straight out of my hand to you. I'm going to give you all the information that I can, but you have to put in the work and you have to practice. And that whip for me now, whether he meant it, I'm sure, you know, he's a genius and, and I'm sure that there was a level of all this that I've interpreted from it, but maybe I'm projecting and I've made it all up. I, I don't know. But for me, it's been a huge thing. And to get that information to say, you're not good now, but you will be so long as you practice. And here's the help. I'm giving you the thing to practice with. Right. Huh. And we're just talking about cracking a whip, but it was a big, it a, was a big deal to me. That's my sukiya. It gives me strength. It gives me encouragement. And when I started teaching to events, now, I don't know, again, I don't know whether it's conscious thing or not, but he used to call me every time before, the day before, all the time. He would call me the night before and like pep talk. How many people going? Well, who's organized it? What's it look like? Is it indoor or outdoor? Just all the little sort of, you know, the bullshit chit chat, but it was the little pep talk, right? Like you've got this. And he never once said, you've got this, don't worry. Because that's not what I needed to hear. It was like the logistics, they're all in place, right? Like you've done all these things. Okay, good, go do it. You fucking, you know, you're ready, go do it. And when people are like, that's what gets worrying when you see people have a coach and the coach is like, you'll never be as good as me, but you can keep trying. <laughs> it's like, fuck off with that attitude, right? Mm. The, the attitude should be, you're not good now, but you're going to be, and I'm going to help you get there. I feel like that's the kind of person that if you want to align yourself with someone to learn from, 
I hope I try to emulate that. I try to do my best in, in possibly doing that because I had it and I've had it from so many fucking people along the way. I'm blessed in that space. Like you, you, I can't even begin to explain, like I, I put in work, like I work fucking hard, but I have had luck beyond imagine being aligned initially with just falling into being able to train with Sam, then you, then Bart. And then, you know, I've paid my way onto other courses. I've, you know, I bought, I bought Ivan's time. I was like, Hey, I want to fucking know. I'll pay my 10,000 US dollars. Cause I want to learn what you have to teach. I've been blessed along the way that I've aligned with people who are good at passing on their information and do it willingly. And that's what I think is important. If you're going to like really want to spend time and get good in this industry, and it doesn't need to be those people. It doesn't need to be the big names. It doesn't need to be any of the people that we've listed or anyone we even know. It just needs to be someone who is doing things the way that you want to do them mm. in a sector of the industry that you want to be a part of and want to pass on their information to you to make you good. That's, I think, the recipe for doing well in the industry. You got to have the passion. You got to have the desire. You got to have all that. That's the ignition, if you want to say, the talent code, right? That's the ignition. You got to have the deep practice. You have to put in the work. But that master coach piece, that master coach has to be all those things we said in the sector that you want, train the way that you want to train. And they've got to have your interest at heart and they want to be like, they should want to make themselves redundant. They should want to evolve with you over time to the point where you talk to them all the time and then you don't talk to them so much. And then you realize, shit, we haven't spoken in six weeks. We haven't spoken in 12 months. And I, and it's not for lack of, we've fallen out with each other. We just don't need each other the way that we did. And they take on a new student and you continue on and get to the point where you take on students. Mm. <sighs> That's my rant on all that. A couple of things I've taken away from that is when you're talking about the whip and your relationship with it, it's kind of made me think of Buck and the gloves that got given to him. Yeah, it's the same shit. Yeah, that's actually very deep. I think those little hallmark moments are very important in life. And another thing that I really like about what you said, which you eloquently put it about how the relationship should be. And I think when you've got somebody who's genuinely, who's coached you, but is also cheering for you and pushing you out to the front, you know you're in good hands when you're with people like that, instead of trying to hide you into the corner and saying, okay, now look at me. They're saying done some great things in my life, but I want you to meet my colleague over here who's he or she is going to be something to look at. They're really showing promise and I, I want you to have a look at what they're doing. When I see people sharing like that, I know that it's corny old phrase, but it's kind of like that sharing is caring sort of thing. And you know that you're like, you, you do know that you're in good hands, kind of like the motto of the ICP in safe hands. I think that whole relationship between a mentor and their student, it's a beautiful thing to behold. And that really is when you are in safe hands, when you've got somebody who is not only teaching you, but preparing you to take on and take over. So yeah. Me and my movie references. I was only watching this movie the other day, and I know that there is some difficulties in this movie. It's the movie A Star is Born with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. And mm -hmm. when he goes to that drag club and he's having a beer and he's listening to her singing and he just thinks, holy shit, this is a voice that people need to hear. And when you're a good coach and when you've got students like that that have worked under you, that's something that really complements you and that's something that says a lot about you, not only is your ability to coach people but also the ability to be a complete human being that when you can see that talent in somebody else you know share that with the world and I love that movie because of it like I said I know that there's some complications in that movie with his jealousy and alcoholism when he does see 
who get there. But ultimately, you know, like there is also sacrifice and everything. But the whole point is, is when he first takes her out onto that stage and they sing that shallow or something like that, I think it's called or something like in the shallows or something like that. But when they sing that song and he first pulls her out onto the stage and she's really struggling with it, but you know, like let's go and you just hear the passion explode from her. Like I've seen that happen with people in the industry before where it's, it's almost like you could visualize a light exploding from them. And you just think to yourself, that's the future, you know, like that little person there, that little package right there is going to guide us safely into a great place in the future because they're doing it for all the right reasons. There's no ego in this. There's love and there's they're sharing and they really want to do this for the right reasons. The dogs are going to benefit. The relationship between the dog and the human are going to benefit. The humans are going to benefit. Future students are going to benefit. Like all of this person is capable of accelerating everything that we're doing as an industry and taking it forward and giving it great practice. But imagine squashing that person imagine holding them back and imagine stifling them and imagine keeping them like chevy chase in that little basement imagine doing that to somebody who had all that talent and does have all that talent because you're too insecure to let go and give that person that big jump start that they need in the industry and not only have you done yourself a massive disservice you've done the world a massive disservice it's a strong word but i hate that about some people it's not something that I probably would not have done myself at some stage with other people. And it's only because I was young and stupid and selfish. So when Nikki had that question before, like, what would you do over? I'd make sure I never did anything like that. That if I ever saw anybody of substance and talent, that I would never stand in their way, that I would step aside and let them move. It's like driving in the fast lane and having a car behind you and just hogging it because you're a selfish prick instead of moving to the side and letting it go and just letting it be like that beautiful song let it be they're the things that you do need to let it be they're the progressions in the world that if you really believe that you're a person of substance and that you're playing your part in the natural order of things that's something i think that you need to be a part of like i said and i've maintained this in increments along the conversation ultimately you can live at peace because you have created the legacy that you really wanted to create all along. You've been a part of developing this. Like our life, it's short. It goes quick. It's amazing how fast it goes. When I was driving to work today, it was a two-hour drive and I was listening to a great book which I recommend everybody read called Atomic Habits. I think the author is James Clear. It's a great book. I recommend that anybody who wants to improve their life and it's also wonderful in the aspect of dog training because he talks about so many of the things that you and I have talked about. Even he uses a lot of pre-macking principles and references pre-macking principles where he talks about placing needs in front of wants. So you can train yourself to have better habits because you can understand that the need to's, they can link into the want to's like Premac was teaching in his training. So you can say, I need to do this in order to have something that I want to do. And then after a period of time, you start seeing them in the same relationship with each other. So it doesn't, Mm. it doesn't have the original impact where you're thinking, oh, fuck, I have to do this. You're thinking, I'm looking forward to doing this because it's a gateway to something that I want to do. It's great. Please pick it up and read it. I think it'll enrich and and enhance your life by actually having that book in your life. Mm, Yeah. It's been a bit of a bouncing around episode. But yeah, I feel like hopefully we gave Nikki and anyone else 
that's that's <laughs> how many thousand people are listening to us give her roundabout advice. But I think, you know, to summarize my point of view is it's the story of the talent code and ignition is passion. And that's what you've got to follow. Like you've got to stay within the realm of the part of the industry that you love because it's a huge dog. The dog industry is massive. The dog training, there's so many parts of dog training that I don't know fuck all about. Like when, especially you get into stock dogs and shit like that. Like I don't know anything about Lure that. Lure competitive agility yeah. and all those sort of things that are just dock diving, all those sort of things. There's just oh, a little a- bit of that. <laughs> but, but yeah, like there's so many areas. And when you say dog training to some people, that really can represent a really different thing. That can mm. be really a different thing to some people. Dog training is, you know, in-home behavioral modification. And to other people, it's teaching people to squeeze half a point out of their healing routine. And that's the difference between first and second place at a, at a championship those people could be doing the same thing, you know, like it could be the same person we're talking about. Like it's a really diverse industry. And my advice is to figure out what part of that you're passionate in and work the trajectory to get to that. And that will encompass everything that we spoke about, the deep practice along the way, having a master coach that's going to help you get there and realize that it's a journey. You can't just get to there. You can't just be there. It's a long journey to get there. And there's a lot of skill sets to pick up along the way. And maintain that passion by avoiding the things that kill your passion. I feel like that's important as well. Leaping back into the book, Atomic Habits, it's the same language that we've used when we're talking about incrementally adding to your skills and knowledge. But what James Clear talks about, which I like the language that he uses, is making behavior attractive. And what he means by that is instead of making something indistinguishable, something that you don't understand and something that you actually find quite confronting, rather than doing that, what you do is you break it down. Same way we talk about when you're, it applies the same principle that I've been telling people millimeters, centimeters and meters, the same sort of thing is break it down to a level where you find it attractive enough that you want to do the behavior. Like you look forward Mm. to doing the behavior because you think I can do this. I understand it. I have a relationship with the behavior rather than looking at it and saying, it's too hard. I don't understand it. It's a book that I think that you will find will enhance and give you value into your life as well. Yeah. That's it. That's it. (laughs) Late at night. I want to go to bed. Yeah, it's late um, for us. We're doing the midnight oil session tonight. Yeah. Hey, that's it for another episode of the Canon Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. The very best way you can help us is by telling a friend in real life to listen to the show. Of course, you could screenshot it and share it to your story on Instagram. That's cool. People will see that. That's awesome. But if you actually just say to a real life human being that you're sitting next to on the bus, go, hey, (laughs) I don't know you random person, but this is a podcast I enjoy. Let me stick my, um, let me stick my earphones in your ear. I'll wipe them first with a, with a crusty tissue. Yeah. Let me put my gross. um, (laughs) It's cool though, because I'm wearing a mask. Let me, let me just, um, let me lick my ear pod and just place it into your ear hole. Yeah. There's no germs getting shared. We've both got masks on, so it's sweet. Uh, you listen to my podcast and these are two dickhead Australian guys that talk a bunch of bullshit and you should yep. listen to that. Yep. And then maybe they'll listen and enjoy it and they'll tell someone and maybe some of those people will go into our Patreon because Patreon is a way that people can monetarily support the show. 
I've been trying to make a video about Patreon to go into the Patreon because I realized that I don't think our video plays on that, Glenn. I think that when people go to that, I think that there's something weird in the YouTube settings of the account because I'm not sure if it plays. Anyway, oh. someone let us know that we filmed initially. But anyway, I've been trying to make another one of those, but I keep waffling on too much. Every time I talk about it, I just keep thanking people because like in a really weird way where I get all, I don't know, I get all churchy at them because <laughs> like it still amazes me that people contribute to our Patreon and care what we have to say and support the show financially. So all your money from Patreon fuels our tech habits. So <laughs> running the podcast is reasonably expensive. There's, you know, there's a few hundred bucks a month in hosting fees and blah, blah, blah. And everything that you guys contribute goes into that. We don't draw any money out of it. We have jobs, we work. Every cent that goes into the Patreon goes to paying for either it's equipment to make better content, it's for hosting fees to host the content, it's for improving the sound quality. Yeah, it all just goes back into it. And that's why over the last couple of years, you, you know, you may have noticed that the sound quality, the quality of the podcast in general gets better, the quality of the production gets better, the, what we're able to do gets better. And we are absolutely blessed that I'm sitting at my, even though we had a shit ton of technical issues, they were they're NBN issues that you're outside the realm of mm. um, Patreon to fix. But we had, I'm sitting at my house talking to you on a full professional setup that's linking to, to Glenn's place. That's amazing to us. So to the Patreon people, thank you so much. I just don't know how to express my gratitude to you guys properly. So I'm trying. There it is. The other way is buy some cool merch. Teespring, get yourself some cool gear. You look mm. rad. I got my towel that you sent to me, Glenn. It's amazing. Oh yeah, look at you. You're wearing the, the hoodie. Jane keeps wondering why we keep getting her pink tops. She's like, why do you keep getting me pink ones? I don't wear pink, but she's a girl. What color does she want? <laughs> Tell me. I'll get whatever she wants. Uh, I don't know. Any color. Blue. I don't know. <laughs> she was wearing the, the blue hoodie you sent me is now hers. Okay. But I love the towel that you sent. That's amazing. You guys can jump into Teespring, get yourself some cool merch, wall tapestries and the like. If you are looking for dog training information or you want to, you know, discuss the show, anything like that, the best way to do that is jump into the Facebook group. It's the Canine Paradigm Discussion Group. Oh, before you, before you say goodbye, before you say goodbye, I do have to say this because I promised I would. Shut up, what Liam, you little bitch. Shut up, Liam, you little bitch. Yeah. This sounds like a clubhouse conversation that's hitting. It's a clubhouse uh, conversation. It's Liam Webb. He's on Clubhouse. Anybody who thinks it's harsh, it's just a love saying between us. Okay. It's an in-joke. It's an in-joke, um, but I yeah. promised I would say it on the podcast, so shut up, Liam, you little bitch. should open with it. It should well, be. <laughs> okay, well, next episode, we'll open with that. Yeah. Yep, so Teespring, get into the discussion group. If you want to get in contact with us, you can shoot us an email. We are info at thecanineparadigm.com. That's it. Goodbye.